We're going to be reading verses 48 through 54. Hear the word of God. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'araim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to grow in our relationship to you and our understanding of uh, the way you run this world and of our advancement of your kingdom. We pray that you would quicken the word to our hearts, that we would be pleasing in your sight with the responses that we offer up through the merits of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, when you looked in your bulletins, uh, you might have wondered about the title, The Violent uh, Take It By Force. Uh, but it, it's uh, a title that's taken straight from Matthew 11, verse 52. It's a quotation there. And uh, admittedly, it's a controversial passage. Uh, the interpretation I hold, most, most scholars hold to it. Uh, the Reformed Church, generally speaking, has uh, always held to this uh, side of things. But are Christians, here's the controversy, are Christians really called to be violent? Well, it depends on (laughs) what definition, what you mean by that. We certainly do not mean the kind of violence that uh, we've heard about in this past week. That is evil. That is wrong. It's contrary to God's word. We certainly do not mean domestic violence or violent temper or, or anything like that. But there is a kind of violence that Jesus commands in the scriptures. We must be violent in our attacks against our own sin nature. You know, Hebrews uh, says that, uh, he rebukes them, he says, you have not yet resisted to shedding of blood striving against sin. Now it's a metaphorical shedding of blood, but it's still a call to a violent confrontation of our sin nature. We must be violent in our attacks against Satan. Uh, We must be metaphorically willing to burn and destroy anything that hinders us from running the race and possessing the kingdom. In fact, uh, the the great um, uh, preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon said that if you don't have at least some violence in you, you're not even a believer. And people said, whoa, especially the liberals. There was a liberal downtrend in his denomination. They said, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. And he pointed them to the parallel passage in Luke 16, verse 16, which you cannot get away from. You could have two interpretations of Matthew 11:52. There's only one interpretation of Luke 16, 16, which says that both the kingdom and those who enter into the kingdom f- are forceful. It's exactly the same Greek word as is translated here as are are violent. And so before we look at 1 Samuel 17 again, I want to give a brief exposition of why this title must be your possession, why every one of us needs to imitate David in our spiritual warfare. Matthew 11, verse 12, Jesus said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, that's the NIV watered-down version. It's accurate. Uh, It's an accurate translation. New King James uses a little bit more literal translation. It it uses the word violent. The violent lay hold of it. 
Uh, another translation has, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been breaking forth, and those who break forth are seizing it. Now, it doesn't matter which way you translate it, whether it's violent, whether it's forceful, or breaking forth, there is a battle, there is a warfare that we are called to, and he says that we need to engage in it with all of our might and not be passive, and in fact, that is the next uh, subject that Jesus goes on to address in Matthew 11 in the next verses. It's passivity. The next verses talk about those who claim to be in the kingdom, but they were not willing to be forceful or violent or break things up or press things forward. Instead, here's how he describes those people. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. Now these children are saying, how come you aren't playing with us? How come you're not playing pretend? Okay, uh, the, Jesus indicates that whereas the kingdom is characterized by visionary aggressiveness, these others who pretend to be in the kingdom are just play acting. They're not going out and doing anything. And that, brothers and sisters, is the contrast that I see in 1 Samuel chapter 17, because for 40 days the army has gone out and has been sort of acting like an army. They've been lining up, they've been blowing the trumpet, they've been cheering, yeah, we're going to get you. But for 40 days, not one person has gone out and fought. And when David came along, he's distressed by this. He's wondering, what is going on? This ought not to be. Now, his brother Eliab is not distressed. Yeah, he's troubled that David is troubled. Uh, but he didn't see any problem with that. But there were men in that army who said yes to David's faith. They said, yes, this is what we are about. In fact, in chapter 18... And verse 1, we see that Jonathan has a kindred spirit with David. When he, even before David gets onto the battlefield, just hearing those words, it stirs a passion within him. And he says, I love this man. His heart was knit to him. He was a kindred spirit. And you might say, well, if he was a kindred spirit, how come he wasn't going out and fighting Goliath? Now, you may remember uh, that in chapter 14, which was several years before, Jonathan did exhibit exactly the same spirit as David. He and his armor bearer went out and they took on a whole garrison of Philistines and they won. Uh, just two of them against all of these Philistines. When he knew that God was calling him to do something, he was bold. He was aggressive. He was a manly man. But what had happened is that even with Jonathan, this spirit had been sucked out of him by the attitudes of his father over time. And it can happen to any of us. We can start off with a Matthew eleven fifty two zeal and over time become passage, passive. Now here's what really encourages me about 1 Samuel chapter 17. It indicates that a faith of a David can rekindle the flame of within a Jonathan. It can rekindle that, make him want to sign up and say, I, I, I want to have the same passionate expression of faith myself. And we're going to be seeing in coming weeks that David's faith made an ever-growing contingent of Jews join him in this desire to believe and expect great things from God and to attempt great things for him. They had a visionary aggressiveness just like David did. And so just like any one of you can spread discouragement in the ranks, any one of you can have a faith that rekindles the old faith that people had in the congregations uh, that are out there. That's why the New Testament speaks of growing from faith to faith. Your faith can kindle faith in other people. Well, enough by way of background. Uh, we're just going to look at four points this morning that teach us how to have this Matthew eleven fifty two faith. Well, first of all, how do we deal with those feelings of intimidation? Because I think every one of us has experienced that from time to time. If you look at verse 48, you're going to see this is a pretty intimidating situation. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. Now, commentators point out the fact that Goliath arose and came near indicates he had been sitting down the whole time he's talking with David. He didn't take David very seriously at all. In fact, he's offended that he's going to uh, you know, have some guy like this coming and fighting him. 
So he's waiting to see if anybody else worthy of fighting is going to come along. And when David gives these aggressive words, it makes Goliath mad enough to get up. He stands up, comes near, and David's able to see (laughs) all of the glory and power of this huge giant. Remember, he was uh, almost 10 feet tall. That's on a short cubit. Some people say he was 13 feet tall. So he's almost twice as big as David on the short measure. He's probably twice, more than twice as uh, broad as David. Uh, he's so strong, uh, his armor alone is 200 and, what was it, 200 and some pounds. And he's got this uh, spear like a weaver's beam. I mean, this guy is an intimidating guy. And what happens when we get intimidated? Well, our mouth goes dry and we get tongue-tied and our thoughts begin to get confused and we wonder, whoa, what did I get myself into? This is a lot more serious than I thought. And the moment we begin to focus on the impossibility of the situation, our faith begins to diminish, doesn't it? It's just like Peter when he was walking on the water. So long as he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, he was able to walk on the water. But when he started looking at the terrifying waves that were all around him, he begins to lose his faith, he sinks. And I think it's a great picture of what happens to our faith. I I should just give as a side note, it would not be faith for David to have stepped out of that boat and tried to walk on the water if Jesus had not commanded him. Remember, that's why Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you, okay? It would have been presumption to get out of that boat and try to walk on the water. It would not have been faith for David to take on Goliath in certain circumstances, but he knew that God had called him to do this, and it was an aggressive manifestation of faith uh, to to come before uh, Goliath in in this uh, situation. Now, we're... Uh, not going to uh, get into the revelation that he had, that he was, God had called him to fight Goliath, and we looked at that in a previous sermon. But here is the point. Even if God has commanded you to do something, you know it's God's will, it's still easy to become very intimidated. So why was it that David was able to go in faith rather than being intimidated by the overwhelming odds that confronted him? I believe it was because he had been engaged in the things that we see in verses 45 through 47. We already covered uh, that in a previous sermon, so I'm not going to spend much time on that. But he was making affirmations of faith, and I believe he made it with real emotion. Okay, He was concentrating his faith with every fiber of his being. He had vehemence in his voice. He was taking the kingdom with violence. He said, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David is, is reminding himself of God's, the power of his name of the the, the presence of his angelic armies, of the glory of his cause. David did this as much for his own benefit as he did for the benefit of those who were going to be listening. In verse uh, 46 and following, he reminds himself, and anybody else who's willing to listen, um, that he had, through a previous revelation, a confidence he was going to win this battle. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. He's trying to get Goliath off his seat, you know, come and fight me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to win you. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Now that got Goliath mad. He got up, and he came uh, toward David. But David is reminding himself of God's greatness, God's covenant, God's promises, God's commands. He's not rehearsing over and over in his mind why everything's going to go wrong. That kills our faith, and we do that too frequently. Instead, he's rehearsing the scriptures in his mind. He's concentrating his faith based on the scripture. So let's apply this. How do you face intimidation in your war against Satan? Same way David did. You affirm the scriptures. How do you keep from getting intimidated by the enormity of your fight against your flesh, your besetting sins, 
you affirm the scriptures. And I would encourage you to do it with real emotion. When you are tempted to sin, say, no, 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 I am not going to do that because God's word says this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. I am not giving in on this sin. You, 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 you are not polite in your interactions with sin. You are vehement when you're tempted to give up. Grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, what is the matter with you, self? <laughs> Don't be giving up like this. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Hebrews 12, 4. When you're tempted to feel lonely and overwhelmed, you tell yourself, snap out of it. God has promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's no reason for you to be depressed. In fact, David did this a number of times in the Psalms. He was so depressed. And he grabs himself and shakes himself, as it were, and says, Listen up, self. Why are you cast down, O my soul? I will hope in God. Okay? What he's doing is he's taking on the kingdom and what God has called him to with violence. He's refusing to give in. When Satan tells you no one else has gone through what you're going through, yeah, I mean, I just really feel sorry for you, and you need to feel sorry for yourself as well. You need to tell Satan, I'm not listening to you. You are slandering God. I am not listening to you because God has promised that there is no trial that has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that I may be able to bear it. Get behind me, Satan. I'm not listening to that. I'm listening to God's word alone. You see, these are giants that are defying God and are slandering God today every bit as much as Goliath slandered and defied God back then. And when your flesh tempts you to say, give it up, it's impossible, just tell your flesh, shut up, I am not listening to you. Because God says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4, verse 13. With God, nothing is impossible. Luke 1, verse 37. So I think you get the point. Intimidation can rob us of faith, can make us go into a direction where we're disobeying God's call upon our lives. And when you feel that coming on, you start quoting God's commands, his promises, his character. You start reminding yourself, God is within me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? We do it with violence. Hudson Taylor once said, all God's giants, you know, we think of David as being a giant. But we say all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they believed that God would be with them. Uh, I love the words of C.T. Studd. He said, too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time of waiting is past. The hour of God is struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us as we for him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear before the world, aye, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him. And we will do it with His joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. Point two, don't be half-hearted when you fight your battles. In these verses, we th see three ways that David illustrates the second point. First of all, he doesn't put things off. He doesn't procrastinate. He hurries. He runs. Verse 48, so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. When we drag our feet in slaying lust, for example, what we're doing is we're giving plenty of time for that Goliath to pick up his javelin and throw it at us. Okay, we're, we're giving him opportunities to conquer us. What was it that led David later on in his life when he began to backslide? What was it that led him to fall into sin with Bathsheba? It was not that first sight of Bathsheba. It was his refusal to slam the door of his mind on that lust and say, I'm not even thinking about that. It was a refusal to define that lust as an enemy that he was going to conquer and cut the head off of. That was when he started his fall. 
If you have struggles with impulse purchases, man, don't be reading catalogs that inflame your covetousness. Don't be go window shopping and say, boy, it's so fun to shop. And you're tempted to buy things you can't afford to buy. No, you have to deal with your, your giant of covetousness before it gets the better of you. If the world, the flesh, and the devil, those are the three enemies that we fight against, if they know that you have a tendency to dawdle, uh, to procrastinate, to play around the edge of sin, you know, to rationalize, to, to be slow in entering into battle, they know you've already lost the battle. You are not going to win your battles if you do not have the speed, the aggressiveness that David did to run toward the battle. The problem with many people who keep falling into sin is they really don't hate their sin. Think of it this way. You're driving down the highway and you've got a bumblebee that flies in through an open window. You don't just nonchalantly think, well, when I get you know, to my destination, the bee will come out of the car. No, I mean, you don't, don't want this thing stinging you. You pull off the road and you try to get it out the car. You try to kill it. And I think many times we, we <laughs> don't act like that with the, with the bumblebees of sin in our lives. We procrastinate, we wait, and we get stung. Do you instantly battle sin? Secondly, David engaged the enemy with the tools he had at hand. Verse 49 says, Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. Now, in a previous sermon, we illustrated how the sling was an incredibly deadly enemy. He was not going into this battle unarmed. And uh, this brings up an interesting point, and that is that trust is never passive. It is always using the means that God puts at our disposal. Now, he did not put his trust in his sling. Uh, He didn't put his trust in the sword that he was later going to cut the head off of. Uh, He was trusting in the Lord, but that does not mean he doesn't use the sling or doesn't use the sword in, in his battle. Trust in Scripture is never pitted against the use of means. So let's illustrate this. If you've got a financial problem, a giant that you are facing, don't passively wait around for God to bail you out. No, you run at the problem with all your might. You get a calculator out. You start trying to figure out, you know, what are some costs that we can reduce in our budget? And you should have a budget in the first place. And then you say, are there extra jobs that I can take on? Do I need to get financial counseling from from the deacons? You engage the enemy. You run at the enemy. You try to deal with it, you do not ignore it. And too many people are passive when it comes to their giants. They don't actually engage the enemy. Now, as another side note, just in case there's misunderstanding, I think it's important to realize that there is more than one way to engage with sin. Now, there are times where we hit sin head on, but there are other times where you make a strategic retreat (laughs) from sin. And let me give you some scriptures that talk about this tactical retreat until you can get reinforcements, okay? It's not saying I'm going to ignore the sin. You retreat so that you can get reinforcements. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. There are times where you flee from sin. You don't even try to fight with it. You flee from sin so that you can get accountability partners and friends. And with those friends, you can come to attack that, uh, that enemy. I don't think that David probably would have attacked Goliath if the army had not been behind him. There's a difference between crazy and stupid. I mean, it was a little bit, seems maybe a little bit crazy to face Goliath. It would have been absolute insanity, stupidity to take on 20,000 or however many soldiers. No, no, he's, he's going to be toast if he tried to do that. Uh, and so I guess I don't know what my point was I was going to make on that. But, oh, yeah, you flee as a tactical, uh, as a tactical maneuver until you can get reinforcements to back you up. So you recognize the enemy, you strategize on how to engage him. Third sub-point that shows that David was not half-hearted is that he put everything into the battle. He didn't hold back. Verse 49 continues, it says, He struck the Philistine in his forehead, 
so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. Now, I want you to notice how he struck him. It says, so that the stone sank into his forehead. Now, some people think, think that, you know, it had to have been some angel that gave that stone extra force for it to be able to do that because they're thinking of a slingshot. They're not thinking of a sling. And I think, no, no, no. This is David did it so that it would sink into his forehead. We saw before that uh, a person who was skilled with a sling could throw a smooth stone the size of a tennis ball more than 1,500 feet at speeds exceeding 250 miles per hour. Now, there's no reason why David himself could not make it so that it would sink into his forehead. Now, why do I bring this up? It's because there was a lot of practice that David had to engage in to enable that stone to fly so accurately and with such force. There was a lot of work that went into making him successful on that day. Practice is preventive medicine in our fight against sin as well. And too many Christians don't practice. They sin and then they confess. And they sin and they confess their sin and sin and confess their sin ad infinitum. Okay, they're, they're just never doing the practice and the effort that goes with fasting and memorizing and meditation and prayer and putting up hedges and getting accountability partners. In other words, they're not really serious in their fight against sin. They are not the violent ones who are taking the kingdom with force. They're just living in this cycle constantly of sin and regret. Now, I admit it's not a lot of fun to practice. Uh, <laughs> you know, spiritual slinging, that practice is hard work. It takes discipline. But as D.L. Moody uh, once said, uh, the Christian life is not always fun. He said, obedience means marching right on whether we feel like it or not. Many times we go against our feelings. Faith is one thing. Feeling is another. So God didn't say practice just if you feel like it. We've got to have preventative medicine. Now, once David actually is before the giant, he also uh, put everything into his throw as well. His previous practice and provision enabled him to throw with all of his might and make that first rock count. Now, he had four backup rocks in case the first one didn't count, uh, but God was with his first throw, and uh, it made the giant fall to the ground. <clears throat> so point one was overcome the feelings of intimidation by affirmations of faith. Point two is actually engage the enemy. Put your all into the battle. Point three is don't stop before the battle is done. Don't stop prematurely. David, first of all, hit the giant, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Now we're going to be seeing the phrase and killed him refers to the next verse. Uh, he killed him with a sword. But here I just want to comment on the fact that David hit him with a stone. When you fight against anger or bitterness or pride or any other besetting sin that you might have, the question is, do you actually hit that giant? Praying against the giant is not hitting him. Okay, Telling yourself, oh, I'm going to quit this sin, is not actually hitting the giant. For every sin, there is a stone that must connect with the flesh. For example, if you've got pride, then you need to give yourself homework that will crucify the pride. When I started um, tackling the giant of pride in my life and, uh, and saying, Lord, I hate this pride. I want you to, to enable me to put this pride to death. I deliberately gave myself homework that would be very humbling homework. I had prayer partners that I would confess my sins to. And then I would do other humiliating things like uh, telling people, lots of people, uh, when I would do poorly on an exam and not telling anybody when I would do well on an exam unless they, they asked me uh, about it, uh, when I would give a, a gift of groceries or something like that to a person, I would try to do it anonymously so that my pride would not be puffed up. And the reason I was doing that is I was trying to connect. I was trying to crucify the inward impulses. Now, that hurt. And here's the point. When you connect with the giants of lust or any other besetting sin within, you're going to find that it hurts. 
Oh, that homework hurts. It hurts like crazy. But if it hurts, it means the giant's still alive, right? <laughs> if you can do it and it no longer hurts, you've put it to death. You've put to death the, the, the impulses of your sin. But it's a good thing to hurt that giant within. That's the first step. When you have a giant of selfishness that God has exposed and told you to conquer, what I would encourage you to do is to pick up five smooth stones of homework, as it were, to crucify that selfishness. For example, in the area of food, you might say, okay, I'm going to let somebody else have the big cookie. Or when the box of chocolates goes around the family, I'm going to say, no, you guys go ahead and pick yours first, and I'll pick the chocolate after you guys have all picked it. Or in the food line, you might let other people go in front of you in the food line. Those are smooth stones that are attempting to destroy that impulse to selfishness within. And there's a lot of other smooth stones you can pull out. For example, you might have a toy that you just think, oh, I just can't bear the thought of my brother or sister even touching this toy, let alone playing with it. You realize, you know, that is selfishness. I need to crucify that. So you say, Next Tuesday, I'm going to let my brother play with it all day. Oh, that hurts. But I hate my giant of uh, selfishness more than I love my toy. Okay? So what you're doing is you're throwing a smooth stone and you're making it connect. You want it to connect with these giants. Too many Christians are only play actors in their warfare. They never actually hit Goliath. Okay, the second thing that David did was to cut off Goliath's head. He was not taking any chances that this giant might get up again, starting in the last part of verse 50. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So hitting Goliath was not enough. Hurting Goliath was not enough. He wants Goliath dead. Have you cut off the heads of the monsters that are within you? Or are you just content with slinging stones from afar? You know, sometimes this issue of sanctification is a messy issue. Oh, it's messy and it's painful because uh, you have to confess to things to people that's so humiliating and you have to make commitments and you have to burn your bridges and, and you have to make the kinds of decisions that will make it hard for you to go back. How serious are you in your battles? Some of us just want to weaken the giant, but we like interactions with this giant. He's a cool thing to have around as a pet. And uh, that giant turns on us and bites us. I had a, a counseling situation many, many years ago where uh, the woman had committed adultery and she had been caught and she was confessing her sin with tears. Let me tell you something. It's easy to confess your sins when you've already been caught. Okay, that didn't prove a thing about genuine repentance. Uh, but when I told her, okay, that's great that you're confessing this, but we need to make sure that this does not happen again. And what I want you to do is I want you to burn your bridges. First of all, I want you to name the name of the guy that you committed adultery to with your husband here and with me. We need to know who he is. Secondly, I want you to turn in the keys to his apartment. Thirdly, I want you to sign a letter. We're going to write it up, draft it right now, telling this guy that you've repented of this. You want nothing more to do with him. You don't even so much as want to see him anymore. And she said, no, 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 I can't do that. And she wouldn't even want to name the name uh, of the guy. And so there was not a seriousness. And I said, look, really, uh, what we ought to do is call him on the phone right now uh, while it's fresh in your mind and tell him, we'll do it on a conference call, tell him, we want to cut this off and the pastor is helping us to build some bridges so that this will never happen again. She didn't want to do that. She said, no, I'll just try hard. I'll be more careful in the future. Well, as you can guess, she continued in her adultery. Uh, it was nonstop. Now contrast that with another couple that I was counseling where the man had committed adultery. By the way, don't even try to guess who this is because it's not in our church. You, you, don't, know, you, you don't know these couples. I'd never bring up illustrations from people that we know. But uh, anyway, this guy, not only, he was serious. He not only was quite willing to do those kinds of things, to burn his bridges, as it were, but he was open to the suggestion that I gave that the four of them meet with us, the offended parties as well as the offenders, together and, um, 
We went and did that. Wow, was that an awkward meeting. It was very, very tense because the guy who had been sinned against, he wanted to get up and beat up, uh, you know, the Christian who had offended him. And I don't blame him at, at all. But this Christian, he was so determined to put this behind him, he was willing to do anything no matter how uncomfortable it might be. He was seizing the kingdom with violence. And we went through that meeting. We set up hedges, and you can guess the results. It was successful, very successful. This man was serious about cutting off the head of the giant. He went for the juggler vein. He was not wanting this giant ever to be resurrected again. point C. David didn't just go after Goliath. He joined with the people of God in chasing the rest of the army. Now, there are some battles that we have to fight all by ourselves, and it's lonely to do that. Sometimes God calls us to do that. But let me tell you this. Most battles that God calls us to, we're not by ourselves. We've got the army of Israel, as it were, behind us right? It's this whole army that is chasing the army uh, uh, of Israel. And uh, uh, one of the things that you signed as on your covenant uh, pledge when you joined was that you would pursue the one anothering passages. We're a body. There's no point in fighting your sins all by your lonely. You can have prayer uh, 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 partners. You can have accountability. You can have counseling. You can have the body ministering and helping you forward. But anyway, take a look at verses 51 and following. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shaharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. These Israelites pushed those Philistines all the way to their capital cities, and there were fortresses. And the, 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 the point is they were invading enemy territory. They weren't just content to stay here. These people are a threat. They're pushing them all the way back. They had finally embraced the philosophy of General Douglas MacArthur, who said, war's very object is victory not prolonged indecision. In war, there is no substitute for victory. And the president, by the way, didn't like him too well for his uh, boldness in saying some of these things. But if you think you're never going to conquer sin, you will never conquer sin. Just guaranteed. If you keep telling yourself, I can't conquer this, you will not conquer that. But what does 1 John 5, 4 through 5 say? It says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He is saying that every genuine believer overcomes the world. Now, if you take that verse as your motto, you're going to have the faith to push the Philistines back to the gates of Gath and back to the gates of Ekron where they will not be able to do as much damage. And you're certainly not going to just draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're not going to mess with you so long as you don't mess with us over here. You're not going to do that. You're going to push them back. You're going to be on a war, uh, a, a, a warfare a plan with them. No peace treaty. Uh, General Douglas MacArthur talked about the stupidity. I didn't use that word stupidity, but you could tell he thought it was stupid. The policies of uh, the uh, American government in Korea, and they were just as stupid later in, in Vietnam, but he said, we could hold in Korea by constant maneuver and in an approximate area where our supply line advantages were in balance with the supply line disadvantages of the enemy, But we could hope, at best, for only an indecisive campaign with its terrible and constant attrition upon our forces if the enemy utilized its full military potential. I have constantly called for the new political decisions essential to a solution. Efforts have been made to distort my position. It has been said, in effect, that I was a warmonger. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
I know war as few other men now living know it, and nothing to me is more revolting. I have long advocated its complete abolition, as its very destructiveness on both friend and foe has rendered it useless as a means of settling international disputes. But once war is forced upon us, there is no other alternative than to apply every available means to bring it to a swift end. Brothers and sisters, that must be our philosophy in our war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We cannot embrace pluralism. We must say all for Jesus. We cannot embrace any peace treaty with our flesh. Instead, what we must do is discipline our bodies, or as the King James words it, buffet our bodies. As Paul did in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, bringing our bodies into submission to King Jesus. We cannot be apathetic about all of the sin that's out there in society and say, oh, well, that's all going to hell anyway. No, God has called us to invade every aspect with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot say, uh, who cares about the evil and the apostasy that's in the church? We must press for reformation. Leonard Ravenhill once said, The true man of God is heartsick, grieved at the worldliness of the church, grieved at the toleration of sin in the church, grieved at the prayerlessness in the church. He is disturbed that the corporate prayer of the church no longer pulls down the strongholds of Satan. The man of God does not stop until the battle is done, which means every one of you must be involved in battle. Because I can guarantee you, the battle is not done against your flesh. It's not done against the world. It's not done against Satan. We must all be involved constantly in battle. The last point is that David prepared for the future. He knew how to value God's blessings, make new goals, make memorials to the past. Verses 53 through 54. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, (coughs) and they plundered their tents. God knows how to provide for his people. The very things that Satan was trying to rob from Israel, God enriches them with. Okay, it's almost like God is giving them restitution. That's why Joseph said to his brothers, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God can make every battle you engage in, battles with sin, to be enriching spiritually, making you stronger. Yes, you fell one day into sin, but because you've battled against that sin, you come out the stronger as a result. And sometimes God even enriches you financially. It goes on. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, we'll look in a later sermon at uh, the confiscation of uh, of David's uh, armor. And really, this whole passage could be applied to literal military campaigns that are out there. I'm not going to do that. I wanted to apply it primarily to our spiritual campaigns that we're in. But David kept this armor to remind himself constantly that the impossible is possible with God. F.B. Meyer said, we never test the resources of God until we attempt the impossible. So when new impossibilities came up in battle, and there were some doozies that are going to be coming up in future chapters, he looked at this sword of Goliath that was in his hand, and he looked at this shield of Goliath that was in his hand, and he could mock impossibilities and say, nothing is impossible with God. That is the point of memorials. They are to stir up faith within us. They are incredible encourages our faith if we will do them rightly. And by the way, this is one of the purposes for the Providential History Festival. It's to try to give us faith for the future by looking at people like David and others who had faith, a world-conquering faith. When you, like Jonathan, begin to lose confidence that God's will can be accomplished in your life and you run across a David or you read about a David from the past, it reinflames that desire, that God-given desire within you to attempt great things for him. So what David's doing, he's trying to keep a memory of God's goodness and his graciousness in his hand. He's learning from history. Part of the problem with the modern apostate generation is they have forgotten history. They've forgotten American history. They've even forgotten the history of their grandparents. 
They don't know history, which means they keep making the same mistakes. Make an entry into the Providential History Festival. Set up memorials. Set up events to remind you of history. Those can be real faith builders. Now, there's one little fascinating tidbit that you're not going to find in the books uh, that uh, many people just pass right over, and that is, why did David take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem? Isn't that a macabre thing to do? That's gross. Why would you want the head of you know, Goliath hanging around your house? Well, when you realize that David didn't live there, uh, you realize this is not macabre, and he didn't have it at his house. The Jebusites owned Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was not conquered by David until 2 Samuel chapter 5. So why is David taking this head of Goliath to a pagan city? He's putting them on notice, right? He's declaring war in the future. These Jebusites had said, actually, no one could ever, even the, blame, the blind and the lame, can defend Jerusalem. This is an impregnable city. It's impossible for anybody to conquer this city. So what David is doing is he's taking the evidence of one impossibility that he has just finished conquering. He plops it in front of Jerusalem, and he says to them, your days are numbered. We're declaring war on you, and we are not stopping this battle until every part of Canaan belongs to God. Amen? This is what we have to have in terms of our philosophy of life. Every square inch belongs to God. So it was another declaration of faith. Now, I think that's a great place to end. Never give up. Never give up. Some people love the memorials. But they're not using the memorials right. They have all of these memorials up on their mantelpiece. And uh, they, they love talking about the, the victories they've had in the past, the successes that they've had in the past. But this is a violation of the spirit of Matthew eleven fifty two. The purpose for memorials and for plunder, all of these things, is to stir us up for more battle, to stir us up for advancing the kingdom of Christ even further in the future. Just like, uh, who was it, Caleb? He said, give me this mountain. Here he is. How old was he? 85 or something like that. He's in his 80s anyway. And he wants to take on another mountain. He never stops fighting. We should never stop praying and living the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you have chopped off the head of some major sin problem in your life or a financial problem or a social problem, Take the head of Goliath, plop it in front of the next giant that God has called you to conquer and say, your days are numbered too. I know I'm not able to get you right now. Your days are numbered, and I'm not going to give up until you are killed as well. That's what you put uh, before uh, your flesh and your besetting sins. Put the enemy on notice that you are one of the forceful ones who will forcefully advance the kingdom of Christ. And Christ said that kingdom is as big as the world. He said the, the, the field is the kingdom and the field is the world. He defined it that broadly. And he says the seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now let me end by returning to our first discussion of Matthew eleven fifty two. 52. Recently a scholar by the name of Professor David Flusser uh, stumbled onto a Jewish midrashic interpretation of Micah 2, 12 through 13, that completely opens up this passage. Just a, it's just amazing. And I won't get into all of it, but the Jewish interpretation of Micah says that God had put a fence around his people. Uh, they were penned in, as it were, up until the time of Elijah, who would immediately... Um, uh, introduce Messiah. And this is a perfect description of the way the kingdom was in the Old Testament. The kingdom was restricted to the tiny nation of Israel and many times to a tiny remnant within the tiny uh, nation of Israel. But when Elijah comes, he would forcibly, violently open up a breach in this wall to let Messiah and to let the sheep go out of that fence. And as these fence, uh, excuse me, as these uh, sheep hungry for the pastures start rushing through that breach, they're jostling, they're pushing, they're breaking off more and more pieces of this fence as they are possessing the kingdom that is out there that's as broad as the world. 
That is the interpretation, I think, that makes sense out of this violence, this forcefulness, this breaking forth, however you want to uh, translate that. And so here's my parting question. Are you consumed with such a holy passion? More and more men with this kind of a faith, this kind of a passion, gathered around David in upcoming chapters, and the army of those who were willing to attempt great things for God grew so great that uh, it says the army of David became a great army. That's a picture of the growth of the new covenant kingdom. Will you be one of the violent ones who will advance the kingdom with everything that is in you? Or will you be like the generation who only wants to play at Christianity? May God raise up more determined Christians like David. Amen. Father, we... Thank you for your word. And we pray, almighty God, that you would use us, though we are weak like David, that your strength would be made perfect in us, that you would not allow us to go from this place without our resolve to fight against our flesh, to fight against Satan, to fight against any aspects of the world that are in opposition to you, tearing down every stronghold, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of you. Father, our passion is to see your kingdom come, your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that your will would be done more and more in our lives personally, in our lives as families, as a church, that your will would be done in society as well. Father, the, the, the waves have lifted up, lifted up against you. And yet you, the voice of the Lord, are mightier than the waves of uh, the heathen the waves of uh, the various forms of paganism that have taken over our nation. And we bless you for that. We bless you that you are sufficient and more than sufficient to make this nation once again a nation, one nation under God, a nation filled with righteousness. We pray not just for this nation, but for all the nations of this world, that you would claim them as your own for the glory of your name, for the honor of your son, for the joy of the angels in heaven. Use us, O God. Use us, make us each one, even the children in our midst, to be Davids in your army. We love you, we bless you, we dedicate ourselves to you, and we do so with rejoicing. In Christ's name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we respond by singing a psalm. This is pretty aggressive language that's in here, but it's a straight from Scripture. And uh, it's using the language of David that we want to conquer with the sword of the Spirit.